Kids can bring a lot of messes into your life. Later in life, the messes are more figurative, uh, but early on, they can be quite literal. Several weeks ago, James came back from a trip to Maine with his grandparents, and he brought back with him a kit for making squeezable balls of goo. Something almost like a homemade stress ball, which on second thought that could be kind of handy at times. Um, Sarah made it clear that it was all my privilege to help him make one of these things. And after a couple of days apart from him, I couldn't help but feel a bit beholden to step right up. So unpacking the contents of the box, the directions were pretty clear. Mix this fluid with that fluid, pour some glitter and some other stuff in it, mix it all together, and just then just pour it into the balloon with the provided funnel. It all went smoothly, and I was able to keep my hands clean until it came to the pouring it into the balloon part. After mixing it all together, the fluids had definitively turned into goo. And goo isn't all that keen on going down a funnel. I coaxed half of it down the funnel and into the balloon, but more direct action was needed. So I started scuff stuffing the goo down the funnel with my hand. And after much effort, it mostly worked. But it had left a mark. My hand was all gooey and it was colored blue now. And I used my father-in-law's heavy-duty soap to wash and wash and wash my hands to try to get it out. And, uh, but eventually I, I had to settle on having a slightly gray hand. It's tough to get clean when we've been in a mess. And scripture describes the human condition as being messy. Not because God made us that way, but because we decided to go on our own way, abandoning life for death. Particularly in the Old Testament, we see a lot of concern and attention given to ritual purity and cleanliness. Don't eat this animal or that animal. Don't mix those cloth fibers together. Don't touch something that is dead. While there's some concern about hygiene in these prescriptions, the larger concern is with being holy. Keep in contact with those things that are orderly and full of life. And keep away from those things that are chaotic and smell of death. At this point in the narrative of redemption, we can look back and see that these regulations served as signs to reveal the vast chasm that stands between us and God, between God's holiness and our sinfulness. They remind us that evil can infect anything and anyone. And they remind us that we're called to nothing less than complete righteousness. As we turn to Matthew 15 this morning, 
we find Jesus engaging on this issue of what it means to be truly clean according to God's standards. Matthew 15, and we will be starting in verse 1. So in Matthew 14, we had just concluded Jesus had crossed over the Sea of Galilee first by walking and then jumping into the boat with his disciples. They landed on the other side. Jesus has been performing some miracles. And then we literally kind of turn the page here to chapter 15 with the confrontation that occurs. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. So here in chapter 15, we see another interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. But this time, it it adds some extra detail here, and it says that these Pharisees had come from Jerusalem to see Jesus. Now, what this seems to suggest is that they may have been a delegation of sorts from the Sanhedrin, from the religious authorities in Jerusalem, to go and investigate what Jesus was doing in Galilee. And what they found disturbed them. They noticed that when the disciples went to eat, they did not wash their hands beforehand. Now, it's important to understand here that these Pharisees weren't concerned about them not washing their hands because they were germaphobes. Now, again, there might have been some hygienic concerns here, but that's not the overriding reason why they're like, why didn't these guys clean their hands? Get them some hand sanitizer kind of thing. Now, in Mark 7, which is the parallel gospel account here, it explains the extent of the washing that um, these Pharisees expected to be practiced. Mark 7, 3, it says, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So you got to key in on that idea of, of ceremonial washing here. There's more than just literally making their hands clean of of dirt or cleaning up a cup or something like that. There's a ceremonial aspect where they're getting rid of anything that would be unholy in order that they might 
be considered pure before God's eyes. Now, the origin of this, and it's really kind of an extension of this, is found in Exodus 30, verses 18 through 21, where the people of Israel are instructed as far as their um, sacrificial rituals go. It says, Make a, brazen, a bronze basin with this bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall, not, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Now, <laughs> we understand that just by washing hands and feet, you know, if you went around with dirty hands and dirty feet, it wouldn't, you wouldn't just naturally die because you failed to do that. This is something where God would strike them down because they are coming before him in a state of uncleanliness, of kind of disorderliness, which is an offense before God's perfect orderliness and holiness. Again, God's trying to reveal this chasm between God and man about how perfectly holy he is. So it goes on and it says, Also when they approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and feet so they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. So Jesus responds to the challenge of the Pharisees here with a question. And no reply from the Pharisees is recorded, and maybe they offered a response, maybe they didn't, but Matthew didn't think it was important to include it. He responds with a kind of a rhetorical question. He says, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Now, what Jesus is kind of getting at here is that this tradition that they have of cleaning their hands and before they eat, is really just an addition. It's a commentary on the commands that God has given. Because we don't have any text in the scriptures given that says that for the general populace outside of the priestly uh, order of Aaron and his sons, it was not prescribed that anyone else had to do this washing. That was an addition. An additional tradition that um, was brought about by um, the commentary that was given on the Old Testament, and we find that commentary in the, in the, in the Jewish Mishnah. Um, but specifically what Jesus is getting at here, he, he's, he's pointing to the fact that that whole hand-washing thing is just a, an innovation on their part. He's, he's pointing to another point of hypocrisy where they've made another innovation that brings them into conflict with God's command. In this case, he's pointing to their tendency to give two thumbs up to people making oaths to God, which would lead them to actually dishonor their father and mother. Mark 7, again, he, he kind of records the trick here for us. It says, Mark 7, 11, But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God. Then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. So you can imagine someone saying, okay, I'm going to devote this 
some, some piece of property, some assets that I have to God and to his temple. And uh, I'm going to hold on to that and manage that. And sorry, mom and dad, I cannot help you because I've devoted this amount of assets, so I can't really dip into that to, to help you out. That's what the Pharisees were affirming. They said, well, as long as you do that, that's fine. You don't have to take care of mom and dad if you do that. And Jesus is saying that's, you know, your tradition there and saying that making such an oath releases you from having to honor your father and mother, that's going in direct contradiction to what God has commanded. In the Ten Commandments, the fifth command is this, Exodus 20, 12. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. And later on in Exodus, and it assigns a penalty for those who dishonor their father and mother. Exodus 21.17, it says, Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Now, we understand that this does not apply today, because that was given in the context of ancient Israel, which was a theocracy, um, in which these laws were given by God authoritatively over his people to demonstrate the exact standards of righteousness that he was expecting. And the thing is, they, they failed. They completely failed to live up to those standards. And we see actually continuing into this day that they're still failing to live up to that standard because the, the Pharisees are creating loopholes for people to fail to honor their father and mother. And incidentally, I think Jesus' outrage here about them creating ways in which people could dishonor their father and mother, I think incidentally it kind of clarifies something he says earlier in Matthew 10.37. You'll remember this, I think. He says, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now when we read that, we were kind of like, well, gee, that kind of sounds like dishonoring your father and mother. Like Jesus is saying, we should be willing to do that. And yet, if Jesus was actually saying that, then he'd just be just as guilty as these Pharisees are. And so it's clear that when he tells us that we should love him more than mother or father, more than son or daughter, his point isn't that we are to neglect those people. True honoring of mother and father and of other family members does not conflict with the love of Christ. Now, maybe it might conflict with the will of your father and mother. You might be coming from a religion, for instance, uh, if, you're, if you're a Muslim, if you're a Hindu, or some other religion where they would say, I really don't want you to become a Christian, to go to church. Well, you're not going to listen to them. And that might seem dishonoring, but in fact, you are honoring them. You're honoring them with the truth. And so true honor does not conflict with the love of Christ. The problem with the Pharisees is that they are putting their tradition, their innovation, over God's word. Jesus says, Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. And Mark says, You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions, just merely human traditions. Now, Jesus isn't saying that tradition is bad, as though we, we, we should always just be doing something different. We have a lot of traditions in our church here. Traditions can be good. 
But the thing is with tradition is it must not conflict with the Word of God. It must not conflict with His commands. And this is kind of the, the driving force behind the Protestant Reformation and, and its protests against the Roman Catholic Church. It was saying, you have traditions which conflict with the Word of God. And so we must choose to listen to the Word of God over just merely human traditions. And in defying God's commands, Jesus identifies these Pharisees with Jewish generations from the past that the prophet Isaiah spoke to. He references Isaiah 29, 13. I'll just take Jesus' words here in verse 7. He says, You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. They're just, they're not, they're not interested in, in God and his commands. They're just interested in their rules. Notice Jesus' point, point here. He's saying that the Pharisees have a heart problem. They're concerned about their made-up rules instead of being, con being concerned with the condition of their hearts and the hearts of others. Picking up in verse 10, Jesus turns from the Pharisees and begins speaking to the crowd. In 10, and he's, it, it says, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my Heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. So Jesus here offers a little parable here to the crowd. And, you know, when Peter says that it's a parable, I, I was actually kind of surprised when he said that because it, it, the meaning just seemed so apparent to me. But Jesus is using the form of parable here. And it's a parable that has radical implications. It goes beyond just the washing of hands, the oaths, and goes to the matter of food. See, the Jewish people, because of what they had received in the Old Testament, were concerned with this matter of cleanliness, of eating clean foods, kosher foods. 
But what Jesus is saying here is that the things that make you unclean are not those things that are from the outside, but are from what are within you. That's how you are made unclean. You're made unclean by your own heart. And so in the Gospel of Mark, we get a little editorial comment later on when Jesus is explaining these things to his disciples. Mark 7, 19, there Jesus says, For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. He's talking about this unclean food. And then Mark introduces this editorial comment, and it says, In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And so we can see with Jesus kind of the roots of what was eventually clearly realized through Peter, through Peter and the dream that re, he received of all these unclean foods being presented be, before him and God telling him, take and eat, and him going to the house of the Gentile, which was a big no-no for Jewish people to enter an unclean house like that. The roots of that begin here with Jesus' teaching that we're not made unclean by eating unclean foods. We're made unclean by our own hearts. And so this is why Christians are not concerned about matters of of food. Now in verse 12, it says that the disciples reported to Jesus that the Pharisees were offended. Don't you know that they were offended when, when you said this? And you have to wonder a little bit why the disciples were telling Jesus this. Was it because they were concerned about the opinion of the Pharisees? That they wanted to be respected by the the Pharisees? Was it that they were concerned about what the Pharisees thought because they were afraid the Pharisees might do something to Jesus? Or... Maybe they were sharing the concerns of the Pharisees because they themselves were maybe a little bit concerned. Well, whatever their motivations might have been, Jesus says to them to not really worry about them because they have been planted by God. Them and their teachings have not been given by God. Again, they are just human traditions. And so he says that they're going to be pulled out by the roots. And this recalls kind of the imagery that's given in Matthew 13 of God bringing judgment upon those who are not of his planting, separating the wheat from the tares, that the tares are eventually going to get torn out and tossed into the fire. And he tells the disciples to leave them because they're blind guides who are just going to lead the blind into a pit. Now, it's funny here because Peter, when he asks this question about the parable, explaining it to him, he kind of indicates some of his own blindness. He asks, explain the parable to us, and Jesus is just kind of beside himself a little bit. And you see a little bit of the, you see the humanity of Christ here, I think, but it's warranted. It's a warranted reaction when he says, are you still so dull? I've been spending so much time with you guys. You should know this already. The point that Jesus says that they should understand is this, is that the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, 
false testimony, slander. It's the heart that's the problem. I've been telling you guys this. And we see this earlier in Matthew, how this has been the point that he's driving at all along. You go back to the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is talking about adultery. When most people think about adultery, they think, okay, that's limited to when a person actually physically cheats on their spouse. Jesus says that's not where it starts. Matthew 5.28, he says, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is saying the heart is the problem. In the next chapter over, Matthew 6, 21-23, he says, For where your tre- treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. And again, I, I mentioned this when we preached on this text, but the ancient conception of the eyes is they're almost like lanterns. Like you have a flashlight at night, it shows you what's around you. The eyes, they're like lanterns, like flashlights. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So to kind of draw that analogy into connection with what Jesus is saying about the heart, he's saying that the darkness is not outside of us. The darkness is within us. It's because our hearts are rotten, our eyes are corrupted. The Pharisees were not concerned about these things. They were concerned about these superficial rules about keeping up the appearances of holiness and purity. They weren't concerned about the heart. And to draw into connection to our own time here, we should ask, is the same true for our world today? Are we only concerned with keeping up appearances? I think we are. I think, I think the world that we live in is obsessed with appearances. We identify those people who are the bad people, and then we go through these acts either on social media or otherwise to indicate that we're part of the good crowd because we shun these, these bad people. And we embrace this idea that the real trouble in the world is the evil that is out there. It's not the evil that is within my own heart. We don't want to recognize that the problem begins with each one of us. And I know sometimes people struggle with this question of, you know, why does God allow there to be evil in the world? Why doesn't he remove it all? And the reason why he doesn't remove it all is because he's merciful. Because if he removed it all, he'd have to remove every single one of us. We're all participants. We're all co-conspirators in it. And this links up with what Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 7. He says, You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. All of us have planks in our eye. All of us have a problem within, and it needs to be dealt with. And what I love in the record of the New Testament is we, we see this development of Peter and his maturity and his understanding. 
And so after Christ has died, resurrected, ascended to heaven, and he's left his disciples, and they're leading the church, and Peter is leading the church, we see that he understands everything very clearly, what Jesus is saying here. There was a council in Jerusalem among the church leaders to deal with this question of, should the Gentile Christians be required to be circumcised? Because ever since Abraham, the defining mark of being a part of the people of God, of being a Jew, was to be circumcised. Obviously, that was something that would be challenging to demand of the Gentiles. And so they were dealing with this question. It was going back and forth. In Acts 15, 5-10, we find the record of that debate and what Peter has to say. It says, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, so there were Pharisee, <laughs> there was Christians who were Pharisees, but again, they're still kind of dealing with this obsession of some of these rules. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the, gospel, the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. And this is Peter's talking here about his visit to the house of Cornelius, to that Gentile household that I referenced earlier. Peter says this, He did not discrim discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. Now what Peter is saying here is that this yoke of the law and then all the traditions that were added onto it, none of it was able to bring about the cleansing and purification that God requires. The law is good and perfect, but it's a, it's a signpost. It's all pointing to Jesus. No one can live up to it. So if we ask the question, well, how can the heart get clean? The answer is given by Peter. He says that the Gentiles were purified by faith. And what is true for the Gentiles is true for the Jew as well. It's by faith that we receive this purification. Faith in what? Well, faith in who? It's by faith in Christ. In 1 John 1.7, says, the Apostle John says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. Our purification is found in Jesus. He is the one that makes us clean. In the epistle to the Hebrews, it's testified how Jesus is effective where even the blood of those old sacrifices in the Old Testament 
weren't effective. So we talk about just mere washing with water not being effective. Even the blood of those animal sacrifices were not effective. Hebrews 9, 13 through 14 says, The blood of the goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are just outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? So the author of Hebrews here is, isn't denying that, yes, there was, there was something to the ritual purification that God was requiring at that time, but it could not go as deep as God required and, and desired. The only way that, that kind of purification could be brought about was through Jesus, by his sacrifice. That's the only way that we can be made clean. Christ has come to make us new people not pretenders. The Christian confession is that Jesus has come. Jesus has been sent to make in us a new creation. This is what Paul testifies in Galatians 6, verses 12 through 15. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Paul's saying... The new creation is what counts is because that's the thing that's actually substantial. Circumcision and uncircumcision, those are just outward signs. It's just surface-level stuff. God has sent Christ to do so much more. See what Jesus is doing here and denying the superficial obsessions of the Pharisees. He's pointing us to something so much more than just a life of keeping up appearances. God wants people who are authentically holy, people who are transformed from the inside out. Don't you want to be a different person? As much as we convince ourselves that we can find satisfaction by accumulating wealth and success, I think deep down, Each of us know the root of our trouble is that you and I aren't who we are supposed to be. There is a fracture in our soul. That's Jesus' diagnosis here. Our trouble begins from within. And he doesn't prescribe cleaning harder because the suds can't reach our heart. What Jesus is doing here is laying the groundwork which will lead us to the revelation that he is our prescription. Jesus is the cure. You must put your faith in him and let him wash you with his blood and with the Spirit. That is how you can find a new beginning, a new start, and become a new creation. Is Jesus 
and him alone. The prescription of the world is to scrub harder. Every man-made tradition outside of Jesus Christ just says scrub harder. And if they don't say that, then what they're probably doing is just denying the grime and telling you to love yourself as you are. But loving yourself won't save you. Only the love of God can save you. You cannot love yourself more than God loves you. We know this because God sent his son into the world for our salvation. Jesus is love materialized. That Jesus would die on a cross that we might live. If you are a Christian, you should already believe this. But we must be careful not to forget it. It is easy to fall into the ways of the Pharisees, to become more concerned with appearances than with the heart. It's easy for us to embrace the people in our church community who have a clean-cut image and to look askance at people who are rough around the edges. Sometimes that outward cleanliness is aligned with a clean heart. Sometimes it's just a cover-up. It is easy to be a community of appearances. But in the eyes of God, mere appearance is just frosting covering a pile of dung. What God desires is a community of confession where his sons and daughters admit their shortcomings. Not to bring ourselves down, but so that we can be built up together in Christ. The gospel needs to be our everyday reality. Every day we reckon with our fractured souls. Every day we embrace the grace and forgiveness that Christ alone offers. And every day we help one another by that grace to shed sin and reveal more of God's new creation in us. If we depart from this, if we trade this for mere appearances, then we are just more blind guides leading the blind with ourselves into the pit. We can desire more. With God, let us desire our full purification found in Christ alone. Let us pray. Father, we come before you this morning and confess that by nature we are like the Pharisees. That so often, Father, we are more concerned with our traditions than with your commands. That so often, Father, we are more concerned with appearances than with the substance of our hearts. Father, we come before you this morning as those who have put our faith in Christ and who have found forgiveness in him 
and purification from our guilt. And Father, we know that through Your Son, You are working out even more than just that superficial covering, Father, in which we are justified and stand right before You, but that You are doing something completely new in us, Father, that You are actually changing us, not by our power, but by the power of Your Son. That in Jesus Christ, You desire and have ordained that we would be made a new creation. And so, Father, remind us that we ought to seek that in Him. That we should desire that purification of our hearts. That we should willingly open up our hearts to be worked upon through the body of Christ, through the work of the Spirit, through the application of Your Word, Father, so that we might be made more like You. And Father, we enjoy the fullness of Your grace and mercy to know that we are accepted even though we're not perfect. That we do not receive the judgmentalism of the Pharisees who ask, why aren't you doing this or that, keeping up these appearances, Father, because we come before You humbly asking You to do the work which You can only do through Jesus Christ. May that be the message that we preach, Father. May that be what we communicate through our life together as the body of Christ. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Christ the Lord Jesus. Amen. The Lord bless you as you go. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.